Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 19 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to check out Blazing New Homeschool Trails, Educating and Launching Teens with Developmental Disabilities by Natalie Vecchione and Cindy LaJoy, available on Amazon. Or you can check out our website, www.blazingnewhomeschooltrails.com. Today is part two of our four-part series titled All About FASD, Professional Insights and Perspectives with Dr. Jared Brown. Jared Brown, PhD, MA, MS, 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 is a professor, trainer, researcher, and consultant with multiple years of experience teaching college courses. Jared is also the founder and CEO of the American Institute for Advancement of Forensic Studies, AIAFS, and the editor-in-chief of Forensic Scholars Today. Jared has completed four separate master's degree programs and holds graduate certificates in autism spectrum disorder, other health disabilities, and traumatic brain injuries, in addition to his vast experience about FASD. This month's topic is FASD and trauma. So I'm here with Dr. Jared Brown, and I am ready to learn. Um, If you have not listened to Dr. Jared Brown, not only will he be on FASD Hope two more times, in addition to today's episode, but he is also on FASD Family Life with my friend Robbie Seal, and he is also on Spotlight on FASD with my fellow friends and colleagues, Claire Devinney, Glenn, and Jessica Rutherford. So, Jared, I'm so happy that you are sharing your wealth of knowledge and just you're being such a valuable resource to our listeners, not only here on FASD Hope, but in our other FASD podcasts. With that lengthy introduction, Jared Brown, welcome back to FASD Hope. Thank you so much for having me back. Look forward to chatting with you again today. It's always a pleasure because, again, we learn so much from your expertise and your your knowledge and your research. So we are very thankful. Let's remind listeners of um, just who you are and the work that you're currently focusing on. You bet. So I am a professor. I do a lot of training in the area of FASD, but I also do a lot of training in the area of autism and a lot of topics related to the criminal justice system. I own a uh, forensic training institute called the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies. And we offer continuing education trainings for really all the helping professions. And I do a lot of consultation with various professionals, caregivers, and organizations on mainly FASDs, my main focus, but again, autism. I do a lot of work with traumatic brain injury, youth fire setting, confabulation, and suggestibility. Those are kind of my 
main areas of focus. So, and trauma. And I know today we're going to really dig into trauma. So trauma is a really important topic, regardless if we're talking about FASD or any other type of condition. Trauma is really an important and complex topic. And it's a topic that many of our listeners send us messages, contact us about. We see it so much in FASD. Before we start talking about trauma, can we just discuss the different types of trauma? Absolutely. Yeah, it's always, I think, a good idea because trauma is really widespread. I don't know a human being that hasn't been impacted by trauma directly or indirectly at some point in their life. And we'll talk about kind of why that is. But in this era of COVID-19 too, really look at COVID-19 is a collective trauma that we're all going through this. We're all being impacted in some way, but regardless of the type of trauma, it can really be emotionally overwhelming for that individual or family or caregivers. It can be mentally draining. It can be physically exhausting. So keep that in the back of your mind today when we talk about trauma, but trauma really is widespread. And a lot of people call it a, a costly public health issue. FASD in and in and of itself is a trauma, is a costly public health issue. There's a lot of dimensions to trauma. There's developmental and complex trauma. That is going to be more common among kids who are exposed to trauma repetitively over and over and over again. So maybe it's a child growing up in a home and they're witnessing abuse day in and day out. That would be more developmental and complex trauma. There's something called historical trauma, intergenerational trauma. Trauma can absolutely vary from person to person. Why does one person who's impacted by that same trauma have a totally different reaction to someone else who was exposed to a similar type of trauma, but they had varying levels of kind of outcomes? Genetics can play into that. What kind of social support did they have? Were they also using drugs and alcohol at the time of the trauma? Were they sleep deprived? Did they get medical attention? Did they have a therapist? Were their caregivers the people in which who were inflicting the trauma on the person? Or was it a stranger? All of these things factor into it, but it's very important to realize that trauma can vary from person to person. Without a doubt, it can impact that individual's sense of self, their sense of safety, their self-efficacy, how they navigate relationships throughout their life. It really absolutely relates to emotional regulation. So again, when we think of trauma, it could be a one-time event. That's, if, if you're familiar with the trauma research, it's more like a simple or acute trauma or multiple traumas, complex developmental trauma. It could be from an experience. What happens if you're a caregiver and something tragically happens to one of your loved ones, your child, your spouse? Just ex experiencing that secondhand can be very, very traumatic. So again, lots of different types of traumas, single event, multiple event. It could be from a natural disaster, being in a hurricane, a fire, a flood. It could be from man-made causes, war trauma, violence. There's a lot of individual and group dynamics associated with trauma too. So again, I'll leave it at this, Natalie, and I'll kick it back to you. But when we think of trauma, regardless if it's someone with FASD or not, trauma can really rob someone of their joy. 
their creativity. There's research on people who have been exposed to trauma that can without a doubt impact their creativity. So if you've ever experienced a trauma and you were really creative before the trauma and then after the trauma, you just, it's really hard to be creative. That is not uncommon. It can take your energy from you. So fatigue, very common. It can impact your motivation. Maybe you're a really motivated person, goal-driven, and then a trauma happened to you. That can absolutely impact your motivation. Maybe after a trauma, you notice that you're more irritable. You're starting to deal with more self-regulation issues, self-control issues. Maybe you're engaging in more stress eating. It's impacting your sleep. You have a lot of racing thoughts at night, worrying and fear, and it can impact your well-being on all levels. So trauma, regardless of what type, it can absolutely have a negative impact on so many different domains of functioning. And this subject is really critical when we're talking about any individual impacted by FASD, because we know that FASD is a prenatal trauma that happens before a child is born. So there's that prenatal trauma, just as if a child had another type of trauma happen to him or her before he or she was born. So let's talk about why understanding trauma is critical for our listeners and especially understanding connections between FASD and trauma. Any kind of trauma someone experiences, you also have to understand toxic stress exposure. That would be a very good search term to be aware of. You can go online, you can find lots of resources on that, but toxic stress is when it's reached a point where it becomes uncontrollable to the individual. Think of it more as intense adversity. It's more frequent. It's more prolonged. It can absolutely be an overwhelming experience. Prenatal alcohol exposure is a trauma. Obviously, we know that can impact brain development and all facets of development. When that child's born into an environment where there's toxic stress exposure, there's abuse, there's neglect, the prenatal alcohol exposure can impact all domains of functioning. But now you have these other environmental factors at play. It just exacerbates it. It's like pouring gasoline on a fire. When we think of this, it is imperative to understand the adverse childhood experiences research. And if you're not familiar with what this kind of research is about, it is really think of it as traumatic events happening to that individual before the age of 18. And absolutely, as I mentioned before, it can occur in many different kind of forms. Some of the more common forms when we look at the adverse childhood experiences research is what kind of abuse was that person exposed to early in life, physical, sexual, emotional? Were they in an environment where there is just a lot of household dysfunction? Was mom or dad using drugs or alcohol? Did mom or dad or the caregivers have untreated mental health problems? Was that child witnessing domestic violence? Was one or both caregivers incarcerated? Parental incarceration is an adverse childhood experience. So what happens? Why do we care about this research? Because the research is pretty clear. The higher numbers of trauma that child was exposed to earlier in life, and if they don't have the proper supports and services in place, there's a greater likelihood that they grow up and have more depression, 
more anxiety. They're more likely to be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, higher levels of insomnia. There's some research to show that people with higher ACEs scores may have more broken bones in their life, higher rates of prescription medication, higher levels of suicidal thinking, more relationship breakdowns, problems on the job, problems in school, and the list goes on. So there's really a dose-dependent relationship this research has found. That's a fancy way of saying the higher numbers of trauma that happen in childhood, the greater likelihood that that person has more emotional, physical, behavioral health problems throughout their lifespan. So when we think of FASD, again, that's a prenatal trauma. A lot of times, unfortunately, it's not just the alcohol at play. What was going on during pregnancy besides alcohol misuse? Was there tobacco use? Was the mother dealing with a high level of anxiety? There's a whole bunch of research on maternal anxiety exposure and the impact that can have on developing child. What was her depression like? What was her support system like? Was she dealing with a high ACEs score? So there's research to show that women who had higher traumas in childhood and they become pregnant later on in life, that can impact that developing child too. There's a lot of components to this. What happens if she was on the verge of homelessness? There's tons of research on prenatal poverty exposure. Was she eating proper foods? Was she getting proper prenatal care? Was she chronically sleep deprived and she was just engaging in a lot of stress eating? All of these factors can impact that developing child. Prenatal alcohol exposure obviously can wreak havoc on that developing child, but then you have all of these other factors at play. It can absolutely exacerbate that. So what does the research say? If we're thinking about this through that FASD lens, we know, unfortunately, that trauma is very common in the lives of children and adults with FASD. I'm aware of some research that's been published in the past that as high as 80% of children had early separation from their parents that could relate to like foster care involvement, adoption, maternal death incarceration. Now, again, some of these studies vary, but a very high percentage of kids with FASD are not raised by birth parents. And unfortunately, when we're talking about trauma, when we're talking about kids that are not raised by birth parents and they're thrusted into the foster care arena, maybe they're in multiple foster care placements. Research has also shown that a very high percentage of people with FASD also have attachment problems. So we need to really look through the lens of attachment, attachment theory, attachment-based interventions. Natalie, I'll stop there. You know that I have a question coming up, so I'm so thankful that you're pausing. So this ties in so dramatically. Trauma and FASD, um, what you're explaining just, oh my goodness, it just, it, it's, there's so many threads that are woven in this, this trauma FASD um, relationship. Before we go further though, there's a fallacy, I think, just in general in society, when, you know, you, you share, or when, um, you know, your child shares their adoption journey. And 
I, I know this, you know, from our family's experience, but I've also heard many other families um, share this with us that, oh, well, we adopted our child at birth or we adopted our child when he or she was very young. So how is their trauma is what they ask me. And I explain it to them. I have my five minute elevator speech about, you know, how the child is biologically wired to be with his or her birth mother, you know, and, and not having that attachment is, is a trauma. So there's that attachment slash trauma relationship in adoption. Can you touch upon that further? Because I really want our listeners to understand when they say, oh, well, you know, we adopted our child very, very young. So there really wasn't that trauma or we adopted our child at birth. There, there wasn't any trauma. There is trauma in adoption. And like I said, if you can explain it from a, your clinical professional aspect, just so that our listeners understand that that is a layer of trauma in the layers of trauma that our children may be experiencing. Great question. Important question. Thank you for asking. So there could have been potentially nine months of trauma happening to that developing child in utero. And as I mentioned, it might not have just been the alcohol exposure. What is that mother's experiences of abuse? Like, was she going through abuse herself, domestic violence? The abuse that that mother was going through can be transmitted and passed down to that developing child? Was she in poverty, prenatal poverty exposure? What kind of drugs or alcohol was she using? And again, I'm not saying that all women who give birth to a child with FASD are going to have this happen to them, but the research shows that it is absolutely elevated. What about intergenerational forms of trauma? It's very important too, and we probably don't have a lot of time to go into this, but being aware of like the topics of epigenetics. What happens if that mother's mother or grandmother had extensive trauma in their life? There are there's certain things that can be passed down generationally, looking at historical trauma, discrimination, racism, all of these things. Was the mother dealing with psychiatric issues during pregnancy? Any type of psychiatric issues during pregnancy could have an adverse impact on that developing child. Maybe the mother was dealing with a lot of stigma or discrimination or racism during pregnancy. There is absolutely research to show that women who dealt with those kind of situations can absolutely have an increase in stress and that stress can impact that child. Maybe the mother has been in and out of the system and she's involved in the criminal justice system. Maybe she has a, a huge fear of losing her child to the child welfare system, or she knows that she is absolutely going to be having to give up that child at birth. What's her, her level of fear like? Her level of hopelessness, her level of helplessness, all of those things, whatever impacts that mother during pregnancy can absolutely impact that child. Natalie, I think when we talked last time, maybe we talked a little bit about the HPA access dysfunction. The HPA axis dysfunction is the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. That's our stress response system. Prenatal alcohol exposure in and of itself can damage that access, but all of those other factors I mentioned too can have a very negative impact 
on that developing child's brain as it relates to that stress response system. So what happens when that child's born and maybe an adoptive family adopts that child right away at birth or six months after birth, they do all the right things. They're using all the right approaches. But what happened nine months in utero? And in some cases, if that child's brain is damaged, obviously prenatal alcohol exposure can damage the brain. But all of these other factors, again, are like putting fuel on the fire. In some cases, this can lead to hyperarousal issues. So that child is more dysregulated. Obviously, infants can't speak, but it comes out being more colicky, being more fussy sleep problems, lots of irritability. Maybe when the parents try to hold that child, the child just is doesn't bond the same way you would expect. As they get older, and if these things aren't taken into account, this could lead to high intensity arousal. Maybe they're more anxious, they're more reactive. They're not aware of their own emotional states. They have that fight, flight, or freeze response, especially if they've had trauma, early and in childhood as well. And as that child gets older and as they get into teenage years, if these things aren't addressed and proper supports and services are in place, unfortunately, in some cases, this could contribute to self-destructive behaviors, deliberate self-harm. That person may be more likely to start using drugs or alcohol themselves. Maybe they're starting to get into some unhealthy eating habits or really getting into like compulsive computer gaming, starting to associate with people that might not have their best intentions in mind. So then that puts added pressure and stress on the entire family system and they don't know what to do. They've done all the right things, but this child is starting to act out more aggressively there are factors that probably have happened to this child before that child came to this, this family's home. So what do we do about it? Obviously, I'll give you a lot of tips, strategies, solutions, but first and foremost, understand trauma, understand attachment, understand that if still, if you do all the right things, there are some factors that happen maybe to that developing child in utero that are impacting this child throughout their lifespan. So what happens when we look at this research? We have FASD, and then we have trauma on top of that. What does the research say about this? Increases in mental health problems, increases in social problems, higher levels of attachment. Maybe they're more avoidant in social relationships as they get older. Maybe they start to have more emotional regulation problems in adulthood. And then this may increase their exposure to certain peer groups or high risk situations that place them at risk for injury in some cases. So there's a lot of things to take into account. Obviously, a lot of these things too can lead to behavioral difficulties. But when we think about this too, there is some research to show not just prenatal alcohol exposure, but these other forms of trauma could impact the way in which that child or adult understands empathy, uses empathy. It could look like they come off as more cold or callous. And I wanna caution people, that's probably not their intent. It's probably a byproduct of some of these things that happened to them that were beyond their control. Some research shows too, that when these traumas are at play, this group may have even higher attention and concentration and impulsivity issues. So this is another reason why that most kids with FASD get diagnosed with ADHD 
or misdiagnosed and no one takes into account that maybe prenatal alcohol exposure is kind of driving the bus. There's also research to show that we know that executive functioning deficits are a core issue of FASD, but now you add other traumas onto that, that can increase and exacerbate executive function, working memory problems. So the person can't hold a lot of information in their, in their memory and they become overwhelmed quickly. So if they're thrusted into a treatment program or a school program and the facilitators or the teachers don't understand FASD, that may overwhelm the person. They may only be able to take in one chunk of information at a time. Talking too fast can overwhelm the individual. Multitasking, not taking enough breaks. And then this research has also shown that it can lower that person's inhibition. Inhibition falls in the umbrella of executive function. And inhibition is just a fancy word for saying it's our parking brake. It's our internal pause button. It helps us reflect and think through and have more awareness. People with FASD oftentimes struggle with inhibition. And think about it, if it's a car and the brakes go out, you blow through that stop sign, what happens? You can hit another car. Using that analogy for someone with FASD, they have lower levels of inhibition. They may be more likely to be very impulsive and just go along with what everybody else says. And this is one big reason why so many of these individuals, unfortunately, come into contact with the criminal justice system. I, I love that description that you are sharing about inhibition being a parking brake. I love that. I'm going to write that down and share that because that is such a great, that's just such a great visualization of what inhibition does for us. It's a protective factor for us. And then when a child, a, a teen, a young adult has an FASD or another brain-based diagnosis. And that inhibition is impacted from not only the FASD prenatal exposure, but from lived trauma, then what you described, they go crashing through that intersection. And we already know the car is going, you know, going 90 miles an hour because of the impulsivity, because of everything. So that's just a great description. And, and I really appreciate you sharing inhibition in that relationship. You are going right into our next question. Again, just these complex layers of trauma. Our, one of our regular listeners shares a couple of questions, and I know that you can answer these just in such a way that she will truly understand trauma and FASD. So she asks, once you start realizing that your child has an FASD and that there may be trauma early in his or her life, how do you distinguish the prenatal trauma of FASD versus the lived trauma experiences? So that's the first part of her question. I think it's probably in some cases more difficult to receive confirmation of prenatal alcohol exposure, especially when there's no birth records, there's no contact. It's probably easier to look at the history, look at files, talk to collateral sources about other forms of trauma. I'll give you two, I can think of two case examples of some cases I consulted on previously when we're talking about trauma. One case I can remember is a female, she had confirmed FASD, but when she was born, she was born into an environment where there's a lot of neglect in history of neglect within that 
family system. She had lack of clothing, lack of food. There was one family member who committed suicide. She was thrusted into child protection. As she got older, she had a history of being bullied and teased by other kids and experienced a lot of different types of social trauma. So we know that people with FASD can really struggle with social and emotional awareness and adaptive functioning, and they can be more gullible and naive and suggestible. So she was easily talked into doing things that did not have her best intentions in mind. She worked a few jobs and she dealt with a lot of employment trauma too, where no one on the job understood FASD. So she was really kind of put aside, talked down to. And unfortunately, this person also dealt with pet trauma. She had something really bad happen to one of her animals because of abuse. So those are things that are going to be more easily detectable and you'll see patterns of this. But if you thinking about this too, this population typically is going to be more vulnerable. So we really want to look at any history of victimization that relates to being vulnerable. So what are some of the factors you'd want to consider when we think of vulnerability and victimization? Physical victimization, emotional victimization, and even financial victimization. That's another form of trauma. What, what happens if someone in FASD goes online, doesn't have a lot of um, checks and balances in place or like an external brain, and it goes back to inhibition. They just give their money away to strangers. They're talking to people online that don't have their best intentions in mind. That could be a form of physical victimization. When we look at this through that victimization lens and victimization is trauma, people with FASD, short-term memory problems, maybe they forgot about the victimization or trauma, or they have a really difficult time articulating that to other people. So then they're in a position where they can't get police involved because they're not able to articulate what happened to them in some cases. Processing speeds, another thing, maybe they just become overwhelmed and they can't take in all of this information. Another reason why maybe they have a hard time telling their caregivers, someone's really taking advantage of me. They, they have a hard time connecting those dots because of poor insight, poor judgment. And that really goes to the heart of like abstract reasoning and things like that. What about difficulty understanding the concepts of time and dates? People with FASD can really struggle with that. So that goes to the heart of being able to share with caregivers or share with the proper authorities when something actually happened to them that was traumatic. Maybe they think it happened to them earlier in the morning and you later find out they're talking about something that happened to them months ago or years ago. So those are a few things to keep in mind. But one other thing I'll say that we didn't talk about the general trauma in that section, something called betrayal trauma. That's another big term to be aware of. Betrayal trauma is when someone grows up, maybe it's in a home with caregivers and the person that they expect to be there to take care of them, to love them, to shield them from like just bad stuff, betrays them and does something bad to them. That in and of itself can just completely rattle that person's sense of self and safety. And if you can't trust the people closest to you, a lot of times people with these issues may go inward and put up a shell and have extreme trust issues and keep people at such a distance. On the flip side of that, 
in some situations, the person may then become start becoming overly clingy to people and strangers and have no stranger danger and something called indiscriminate friendliness you probably want to be aware of where you see this more in kids with like reactive attachment disorder and disinhibited social engagement disorder where they don't have fear of strangers. They may run up to a stranger and give a hug. That is terrifying for family members and adoptive family. So these are all really important things to be aware of. And another reason why maybe to seek the services of professionals who understand attachment and trauma as well as FASD. Hopefully that answered your listener's question, but we can go a lot deeper into that too, Nellie. It did. And it ties into the second part of her question, which was my next question, uh, which I know we'll go deeper into. Knowing that and knowing this wonderful information that you're sharing with us, how can parents and caregivers help their children that have both FASD or prenatal substance exposure trauma, along with the lived experience trauma at different stages of their child's life? If we look at the general FASD research literature, it talks about protective factors. And a lot of this is common sense for any any human being, but the earlier you can obtain an accurate diagnosis, the better. So you're understanding what actual diagnosis they have. So then you are treating it effectively and working with providers who understand these topics. Obtaining services maybe through like the county that are really specific to intellectual and developmental disabilities, like getting proper case management, in-home support services. If that individual is dealing with any exposure to trauma, obviously try to get them out that environment and get the trauma to stop. Getting more stability, structure, consistency, being in a quality and positive home environment are very, very, very important. Also very important to just understand the research on trauma-informed care. Now that's not just specific to FASD, but understanding trauma awareness, the different types of traumas, the definitions, how it can impact people, really placing an emphasis on safety. If that person you're working with or child or adult, whoever it is, they don't feel safe and secure, think of that as almost building a house. Safety and security are the foundation. Without that, it's so hard to put up the walls, the roof, the windows, the plumbing, the electric, all of that. You have to build a foundation of safety and trust. And then you start, obviously, throughout this process, it's a really strengths-based approach. Making sure you really focus on hope, focusing not just on the person's limitations and weaknesses, but capitalizing on their strengths, hobbies, skills, attributes, doing anything you can to help promote self-efficacy, promoting self-regulation. If they're dealing with any co-occurring problems, for example, the person's dealing with depression or anxiety, work on that. If they're dealing with sleep issues, work on that. All the things you know that might be going on with the person, work on that. The more you can help them regulate their body, their mind, getting them proper supports, and just forming positive, trusting relationships with other professionals and providing support to that entire family system is absolutely, without a doubt, imperative. A a former 
person I worked with, she's an adult female. She had FASD. And I asked her, what was helpful for you throughout life? And I've learned so much from working with people with FASD and talking to the caregivers. Those are the, those are the folks who taught me the most by far. But this adult client, very insightful, but had a lot of limitations in a lot of areas too, but very insightful too. She said that what helped her the most when working with any professionals or anyone, allow extra time to process, slow it down, don't overwhelm her. She also said it helped with co-regulation, having someone beside her that she trusts, kind of that external brain, a coach, a mentor, someone that could sit with her explain it, not get irritated because she needed more time, putting reminders on her phone, on a calendar, having visual reminders and cues. She also said she appreciated when people treated her the same as anybody else and treated her with respect and not like talking down to her. People that use a really calm and soft voice tone and just stayed regulated themselves was very, very helpful. And she also said just people just being down to earth who are kind and funny and just engaging and not being overly serious were helpful for her. Now, I think a lot of those things I've seen very helpful, but for me, I think just things I've learned over the years, consulting with lots of people, individualize your approach. Everyone with FASD is so different. They all have unique experiences, strengths, limitations. So individualize your approach. Look at their emotional and developmental age rather than the chronological age, because just because someone's 20 years old chronologically, more, more times than not, they're not going to function at the chronological age. It's typically going to be several years earlier. Look through a non-judgmental lens. I think very important to stay curious, stay encouraging, motivating, being empathetic, very important to be aware of the dynamics associated with their attachment patterns. Because again, very high percentage of people that have VSD have attachment issues. Anything you can do again to be calm, I think kind, calm, patient, curious, all of those things can instill hope and make some good positive change for the people you're working with. This is wonderful, Jared. I have a list of probably close to 20 things that you've given us, you know, for caregivers and parents to keep in mind, this is a wonderful list and something that stands out, which I know we're going to be talking about in uh, an upcoming episode is thinking about their developmental age. And a previous guest had said she's a clinician and she had said, if you focus on the strengths of their developmental age versus the deficits of their chronological age, then that's a complete shift in parenting. And that really does help you with that strength-based lens of, of, of caregiving, of teaching, of, of helping and assisting um, a loved one that has an FASD. So I, I I've written all these down so that our listeners will be able to see all of these wonderful um, tips and, and protective factors. So before we wrap up this amazingly resourceful episode about FASD and trauma, where are some places that listeners can look for, for resources related to trauma and FASD and trauma? You can share my email address with folks. I have a lot of resources. Um, if you Google my name and type in FASD, you'll find a lot of resources online. 
if you go to the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies website, I've done a lot of webinars on there. We have other professionals who have done various recordings on these kind of topics. If you go to YouTube and just type in, and this is not necessarily FASD, looking at TED Talks, typing in the ACES research, the Adverse Childhood Experiences research, you're going to find some fantastic resources. If you go to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website, they have a page on there dedicated to the first ACES study that was published in 1998. I think it's imperative to read that to understand where that research came from. The research, the ACES research did not focus on FASD. Since that time, it's been absolutely looked at so many different populations. Looking online too, just look, Googling trauma interventions for children, complex trauma histories. Now it's important to be aware of that, but working with a provider who understands these topics is so important, I think. So those are a few things. You can go online too and just read on attachment-based interventions for caregivers. What would that look like for a caregiver? What's what what's attachment-based interventions? This is all common sense. You all know this, but what does love mean? Empathy, compassion, being sensitive, having good boundaries, not putting that child in an adult role, making sure that things are consistent expectations are there, avoiding any harsh parenting practices. Discipline's good. Harsh parenting gets to the point, yelling, screaming, shaming. You want to be warm and consistent and structured. But I would always ask too, I'll leave you with this, but when you're working with anyone through a trauma lens, just ask yourself in the back of your mind, if it's a child or an adult or whoever it is, the person you're working with, do they feel valued and respected? Do they feel rejected? Have they had a history of being shamed, abandoned, ignored? Ask yourself that. If they've had those histories, those are all traumatic. And a lot of kids with FASD, a lot of adults have had way more than some of those things go on for them. So ask yourself that. Are we approaching it in a manner that's trauma-informed, trauma-sensitive? Are we taking into account their trauma triggers? Are we having the appropriate level of compassion and empathy and really meeting them where they're at? Because if we are, that's going to help them be way more successful than if we're not and we're minimizing them. So we really need to be aware of that. And this is just as much for professionals as it is for caregivers. So just a few things to keep in the back of your mind when working with anyone with a trauma history. Fantastic information, Jared. As always, I am so thankful to know you and to have you on FASD Hope to share your experience, your your research. I'm I'm very thankful that you are doing this series for us. And I'm also thankful that you're doing it on FASD Family Life and Spotlight on FASD so that we can provide our listeners with this wealth of, of information. So Jared will be back next month in November. I am so thankful again, Jared, for you and for your presentation on today's topic, which is FASD and trauma. You know, we like to end our episodes on hope. What words of hope can you share for our listeners today on their journeys and with today's subject in mind of trauma and FASD? I really believe by becoming attachment informed, becoming 
FASD-informed, trauma-informed, and even sleep-informed, you're going to see positive changes. Now, I'm not saying it's going to cure someone with FASD, but I think it can absolutely make a significant difference in their life and lead to more improvement. And when I look through that lens of hope, again, I think calm, patient, kind, making sure we're timely too, and we're responsive and we're specific and we're consistent and we're respectful and we're avoiding judgment and we're trying to stay as curious as possible. And we're absolutely staying developmentally and emotionally informed. And other things, when I think of hope too, if people have hope, they're going to be more motivated. They're going to be more optimistic. They're going to be healthier and happier. So promoting those things, optimism, maybe promoting gratitude. Maybe it's exercising as a family, sitting down, having meals together, just spending time, showing interest playing games together, reducing the technology usage, I think is such a good thing. Reading to your kids, teaching self-control, living a healthy lifestyle together. I all think those are things that keep me hopeful and positive and optimistic. And I think any family, regardless if it's raising a child with FASD or not, if you use those approaches, you'll probably see better outcomes than not using those approaches. I am so thankful for those hope takeaways, Jared, because that's something that on FASD Hope, we try to promote as often as possible everything that you're talking about. Thank you so much for being on FASD Hope today. You're welcome. Thank you again. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Becchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and review and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us again next week and remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.